I love the Winston Churchill quote. There's something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, they're really, horses are really emotional and really intuitive. If you're angry or upset or stressed or whatever, don't go into the pasture. Don't go deal with the horses. You've got to be centered inside and calm. Dr. Robert Malone exudes calm, despite being perhaps the most despised expert in the world for sharing scientific facts about COVID, vaccine risk, early treatments, and Dr. Fauci. The native Californian who invented mRNA vaccines sat down for a laid-back but hard-hitting interview at his beautiful horse farm in Virginia, addressing all these important topics and more. Vaccines that uh, produce an immune response against spike are some of the most effective in blocking infection. Historically, those vaccines also have been associated with a phenomena called um, vaccine-enhanced infection or disease, of which one subset is called antibody-dependent enhancement. Okay, so that's one set of concerns, is that uh, spike-based proteins traditionally for coronaviruses have been associated with this phenomena that exists with vaccines. Any vaccinologist knows that this is always a risk when you develop a new vaccine, is that you end up with something that actually makes the disease worse or the infection more efficient. Now, it's not just me saying this as a risk. Uh, It has historically been the risk that has bedeviled all prior coronavirus vaccine development. And uh, it was specifically identified by the FDA as a risk in their emergency use authorization letters for these vaccines. And by the way, all the, all the vaccines we have here in the States, not worldwide, but all the ones we have here in the States are genetic vaccines that express virtually the same spike protein. So in terms of the, uh, what generates the immune response, what your body's reacting to, they're all the same. So let me, so you are saying that the vaccine has actually made the virus more dangerous. That is a risk. That has been the risk with other coronaviruses in the past. It is, uh, it is why we do not have a respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, the children's disease that now is coming back really strong um, and is a worldwide problem, in, particularly in children, particularly in newborns and premature. Uh, but now we're seeing it more and more in older people. So what's happening? So right now? respiratory syncytial virus is one example. Another great example is the dengue vaccine, Dengvaxia, and that also has uh, basically had to been withdrawn from the market. And there was uh, multiple lawsuits and, and criminal indictments uh, in the Philippines over the use of Dengvaxia because of the deaths, excess deaths in children. So it's always a risk. It has been a historic risk with these coronavirus vaccines. It's identified as a risk by the FDA. And the FDA said that, that uh, they had not seen study data to demonstrate this, vex, this risk 
would not manifest. Um, and that they asked the developers to do the necessary trials. They didn't insist that they would do them. They asked that they do them. And to the best of my knowledge, the developers have kindly declined to do those trials. So we don't know at this point whether or not there is vaccine-enhanced disease going on with these vaccines. There is some signs in the data, particularly with Delta, that this remains a possibility. Uh, and, and it's a paradox that we're seeing um, equal or higher levels of virus replication in infected people that have uh, had what, what are being called in the press breakthrough infections. People that were fully vaccinated and yet they get infected and often they go to the hospital. Uh, usually their disease is less than uh, it would have been if they had not been vaccinated, but their level of viral replication is the same or higher as people who were not previously vaccinated. If it was, and the, the data are a mess. One of the problems we have is that the CDC has not, and the FDA, have not insisted that the rigorous studies be done to, to you know, rule these things in or out. And so we're left trying to read, to discern knowledge from very imperfect data sets. How egregious is this, doctor? Personally, I find it shocking. I, I, one of the things that led me into this position and led me into the Brett Weinstein Dark Horse podcast thing that kicked all of this off and you know because it went viral uh, was that I was asked to uh, assess a data package that Pfizer had filed with the Japanese government to obtain emergency use authorization presumably the same data package that was filed with the FDA and the European Medicines Agency but um, in the, in the FDA rule book, uh, common folk can't see those packages, just the internal FDA people can. They're uh, covered by confidentiality agreements. Uh, whereas in Japan, uh, they, the terms are that they post that information. So it became posted, I was asked to review it, and what I found shocked me at the time and I had a more senior regulatory affairs person review it and they confirmed my observations which was essentially that the regulatory agencies of the world I can only speak about Pfizer that's the only package I've reviewed allowed Pfizer to proceed with um, human trials and then emergency use authorization with a set of data that um, is grossly incomplete, did not meet even the minimum standards of what is normally required for safety, toxicology, and, and genotoxicity and reproductive toxicity testing. Uh, the appearance is <clears throat> that they were allowed to cobble together information that they'd obtained with other RNAs and other vaccines and put it in as a package 
in lieu of doing the actual studies de novo uh, that they one is usually I would be required to do my colleagues at Reliance are required to do um, uh, and, and they were allowed to proceed on the basis of this grossly inadequate information package okay, so we have grossly inadequate information yet we have politicians the president of the United States now demanding that people get vaccinated we're at this crisis now in our country I mean this has to be uh, shocking to you as well. It's it's um, profoundly demoralizing. Um, that I one of the tensions for me is to uh, um, maintain uh, a positive attitude and keep going. I mean, we're from my point of view. What I've seen throughout this is, I is I don't how else to say it. It's profoundly corrupt. Uh, I I can't explain it any other way. Uh, the the norms that I have been trained for years, and and you know this is years of my life. Uh, professional life, taking this training, having this experience, you know, serving my customers in these areas, saying this is what you have to do, these are the rules, and then um, none of the rules matter. They, the rules about bioethics, uh, they've completely disregarded. These are, these are rules that go back to the end of the World War II with the Nuremberg trials. They, they there, I, um, I mean, what I see is so profoundly disturbing to me, I, I'm now to the point where m my point of view is that the FDA and the CDC are essentially acting um, outside any judicial restraint. They, they don't care about what their standard rules are. They will do whatever they want to do. And a, a lot of it seems to be driven by what Dr. Fauci's personal beliefs are. And, uh, and I, because of the legislation that was put in place at the start of this outbreak, I don't know that they can be held accountable. I, I, do, I think it's an open-ended question whether the Health and Human Services in the United States is fully extrajudicial now. Can they be held accountable in the courts? Because they're certainly not accountable to their own policies and procedures. What do you think of Fauci? Um, so I hope that Dr. Fauci resigns soon. Um, I, I've just uh, reviewed and helped edit Bobby Kennedy's book on Tony Fauci. And I've, I've, I go back to 83, so the very start of the AIDS outbreak at UC Davis, right down the road from UCSF and the San Francisco community. This is kind of formative experiences for me as a young scientist and vaccinologist, the politics and other things that happened there. So I've known of Dr. Fauci, I've met Dr. Fauci in person, I've been in his office. Um, 
I've watched him over the years. He, uh, it's been a source of amazement to me and my colleagues that the rules don't apply to him either. Uh, he things that are, we're strictly forbidden to do, such as breaking the blind in clinical trials, he does routinely, and no one there's no consequences. He he, and as you know, his wife is the head of bioethics for NIH. That didn't used to be the case. That happened after he got in. There was a big bioethics blowout with him in the AIDS research that went on in Africa. Um, and the, the head of bioethics for NIH left. His wife took her, his place. Um, so Tony, Tony also exists in a world in which the rules don't apply. Do you believe when he says that he did not fund gain-of-function research for the no, Wuhan that's false. That's the whole That whole storyline has collapsed. And it's not just uh, NIH. I mean, the, the documents are there. You can't refute it. They were found under Freedom of Information Act. The paper trail is there. Um, uh, unfortunately, the paper trail is also there for the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which has long been my client. So I find that disillusioning also. So, Doctor, you say we shouldn't go with the vaccine-only approach. What, what approach should there be? What, what would be the, if you were making these decisions, what should we be doing about fighting coronavirus? So thanks. I get that question all the time. Uh, you know, if, if uh, um, Mr. Biden was to call you in, what would you say? That's, that's kind of the where the rubber hits the road, right? What would your advice to him be? And this was first kind of posed to me by Peter Navarro on the Steve Bannon show. Uh, and kind of, he just kind of dropped it on me. Boom. Uh, and we... We worked out and then wrote two op-eds in the Washington Times about this. And this is the policy that I also discussed with Cardinal Turkson when uh, I visited the Vatican recently. In my opinion, the current data support administering vaccine to those at high risk, 65 and older, obese, and high-risk individuals of all age strata. And that includes the morbidly obese pediatric population. I mean, they're, they're at high risk. Um, the general pediatric population absolutely is not. And the data are increasingly clear that the risks of the vaccine for that cohort, up to age 18 at least, are higher than the risks of contracting the disease in terms of morbidity and mortality. Okay, so save vaccine for those that need it most. Distribute it globally. Protect the elders of all cultures, not just the United States and the Western nations. Don't hoard vaccine. This is amoral or immoral. Um, we're in a crisis. We're in a public health crisis. And yet it seems to be primarily seen as a financial opportunity and one that is caught up in, in geopolitical considerations that I think are entirely inappropriate. So vaccinate those that need it most, including elderly, morbidly obese, high risk. Number two, make 
drugs available for early treatment. You have to treat early. There's a variety of agents that are effective when treating early because the disease is not the virus. Very little of the clinical disease that's observed is due to the direct virus pathology. In terms of what the virus directly causes as damage, it is similar to the influenza and many other common respiratory viruses. What kills you is the hyperinflammatory response that some of us generate against that, okay? And that's what gets you is that second wave. So everybody that treats COVID and those of us that have been tracking it since the get-go, I don't treat patients, but I work closely with people who do. And I'm licensed, I could treat patients. I just do this other stuff, I do clinical research. So there's two waves in the, in the course of the infection. And the first one is more of a classic viremia. Um, so fever and you feel bad and you know get a runny nose and things like that. And it's got some weird things like the loss of taste and smell uh, that aren't usually seen, but actually are seen in some viral diseases. And then the second wave kicks in or it doesn't. And the second wave is what can kill you, particularly if you're in one of these high risk groups. And what it has to do with is this inflammatory response to the virus. Okay, so the good news about that is that we have got a huge toolkit of stuff that's really good for inflammation, right? Because inflammation is joint pain and, and fever and all these kinds of things that the pharmaceutical industry finds very lucrative to build products for. And a lot of these products are off patent. So uh, there are many anti-inflammatory agents and people you know, talk about ivermectin. Uh, it's pretty clear that at least one of the mechanisms of action of ivermectin is an anti-inflammatory. Now, you gotta get these anti-inflammatory cocktails and they're getting increasingly sophisticated in, in lab test driven by those that are doing this work, which is a tiny subset of all physicians are willing to treat in the outpatient environment, which is in and of itself shocking. Uh, they've been told that there's nothing that works, and that's another rabbit hole. Why, why all that messaging that there's nothing that works when clearly there are things that work? Um, but uh, you have to get these drugs on board early. So first point, vaccines for those that need it. Second, early treatment with existing drugs. And what's being done in places like India is they're giving out COVID kits, you know, and you've got, everybody's got their little bag of stuff and uh, doesn't cost very much, it's repurposed. And if they start having the symptoms, they start taking the drugs. And in those provinces that have done that, the incidence of COVID-19 disease, remember the disease is different from the virus infection, has just crashed. Okay, it's down to almost no disease at all. What's in those kits? That's a good question. They haven't disclosed them formally. This is done with CDC and WHO. We know that the kits are working. Um, the unofficial statements is that they include uh, things like zinc and uh, ivermectin. What about hydroxychloroquine? So hydroxy is another interesting situation. So in any case, but staying with the points, four points, vaccines, early treatments, home diagnostics, and tools to allow people to do self-assessment. 
Home diagnostics are readily available. For home use, they are typically skewed. With any test, you have false positives and false negatives. And the false positives and false negative rate is a function of how prevalent the disease is in a population. It's a complex set of interacting equations. But it's really easy to set up a test that's biased to false positive. What's wrong with the false positive? Well, if the drugs were toxic, that would be bad. But these drug treatments are not toxic. Um, and what you typically do is you set up one of these rapid tests so that it has a high false positive rate. And then if you get a positive, you go get a confirmatory test that's a lot more specific. That's classic diagnostics, how you handle it. Okay. And then the last one about self-assessment tools that go on your iPhone or whatever device you have, electronic tools. The population is just bombarded with fear porn, with this uh, constant messaging that you have to be afraid. In the latest, we were talking about Tony Fauci. Tony is now saying, he, he made a statement, oh, we're going to have to skip basically the holidays again this year. And we don't want people congregating. And then he backtracked and he said, no, that isn't what I said, even though he's on tape saying it. But this, we're constantly subjected to this uh, fear porn about uh, how much you have to be afraid of this virus. The truth is that for the average person, who's otherwise relatively healthy, isn't elderly, isn't morbidly obese, their risk of death and hospitalization is a fraction of a fraction of a percent. Okay? And fascinating recent poll showing, you know, we, we got all these polls back in the day comparing Trump voters to, to you know, Democrats versus Republicans and and uh, how much misinformation Fox News was putting out and all this kind of stuff. You may remember those. Well, there's another poll recently that showed that the majority of Democratic, uh, you know, aligned voters, like 40, 50 percent, think, or, or more, think that they have a very high risk of hospitalization or death from COVID, not so much in the Republican cohort. So there is a case where that whole misinformation is flipped. The truth is that your risk of death and disease is negligible for almost everybody, and there's little tools that you can put on your iPhone or your your whatever device and um, uh, your Android device that you can punch in your information, and it'll tell you what your risk is. So I think that's a really important fourth thing to make available so that people aren't just driven crazy with all this fear, which, by the way, is really damaging the children. So that's, that's the four points. Vaccines for those that need it, not for everybody else. Make them globally available so we're protecting the elders in all cultures. Early treatments with existing drugs. This includes uh, um, the antibody therapy like uh, Ron DeSantis has been doing in Florida. That's one agent that has, or set of agents that, that have potential benefit. Um, uh, home diagnostics, so you know that you're infected with this virus as opposed to the common cold or another coronavirus or RSV or whatever. And uh, tools to allow you to do self-assessment. Could you just talk about, uh, you, you mentioned that for adolescent boys up to the age of 18 or 19, that, that the virus itself can be more dangerous. And we're, we're I just spoke mm, to vaccine. a- Oh, um, the, vac the vaccine is more dangerous than... I just spoke to a father a couple of weeks ago whose 15-year-old son 
uh, took the, the, the Pfizer virus four days later, he collapsed and died myocarditis. This seems to be a theme. What, what's going on with that? So what's fascinating about the myocarditis and pericarditis, uh, this was known as a risk back last fall, so a full year ago. Um, there is a number of risks that are known with these vaccines that the CDC and the FDA just kind of go blah, 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 and don't listen to, don't pretend, you know, don't, don't recognize. They had long been aware that the VAERS and VSAFE and other database systems were grossly inadequate in the United States. And they had hoped that these data sets from, they had trusted that the Israeli data and the ability of the Israelis to analyze those data was far superior. And so if they weren't hearing about risk from the Israelis, uh, then they didn't have to worry. Uh, there was kind of a, a pirate group at the FDA that's outside of the review branch that um, worked with a really high-end biostatistician from a company called Oracle that knows something about statistics uh, and databases. And uh, they examined the existing data. And because of the novel statistical approach, because the FDA and the CDC are basically locked into old school stuff, they haven't updated a lot of their approaches. So he applied new tools like are being used at Oracle. And he picked out the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis in the adolescent population. And let's park that. Why was that possible? Um, we'll come back to that in a minute. So he picked it out. They notified the FDA and the CDC. They notified the Israelis. The Israelis then did the analysis looking for that specific phenomena. There's reasons why this has to happen in this way. Uh, it has to do with, you can't repeatedly query a database. You get statistical errors if you do that. So you kind of have to know what to be looking for. It's one of the problems. So the Israelis went hunting and they said, oh, holy moly, there's the signal. Okay, and then the CDC found the signal Okay, so it all happened because of basically a little pirate group outside of the review branch in the FDA that, and by the way, they're also aware of a number of other problems. One of the other big ones is virus reactivation. So myocarditis is just one of a large spectrum of known adverse events that the CDC acts as if they don't exist, but they do. Um, the most recent one finally has come to fore. For instance, there, there was a lot of denialism about all these women reporting dysmenorrhea, alterations of their menses. And, uh, and there was a lot of, oh, that just, you know, those are hysterical women and, you know, it's, it's so 1950s. Uh, and lo and behold, that's a real signal, okay? So the myocarditis, what's going on there is a really good question. Uh, now let's, let's in terms of the mechanism, so let's park that for a minute. Um, why was it picked up in the adolescence? The reason is because they don't have heart problems. 
okay? Kids don't get cardiac disease. That's a disease of older people. It's extremely rare to get myocarditis and pericarditis in the pediatric population. Now, what that means is if you're looking at a database, a set of information, if you have, if you're looking at 50-year-olds and you're looking for cardiac events, you've got a really high background level of cardiac events because, you know, old folks, as they age, we get cardiac disease. We get vascular disease and plaque and all that kind of stuff, right? We all know this. Kids don't. And so if you see cardiac events in the pediatric population, they're really easy to see statistically because there's no background noise. You don't have to sort it from the background. You're not faced with this. Is this real or is it just an artifact? You know, would have this have happened otherwise? And if you see it in the people that are getting jabbed and you normally wouldn't see it in other kids, which is the case, then suddenly it's easy to find that signal. So that's why it was detected. That absolutely does not mean it's not happening in all the other ages. And now we're seeing, now that that is an official signal and people are recognizing that, now we're seeing more and more data come out that, oh, well, look, myocarditis and pericarditis are happening in other cohorts. Well, this is big news, doctor. I mean, if you have an adolescent son, he should not get the vaccine. I feel strongly about that and the risk, you're right, the risk in males is significantly higher than the risk in females. Now, this this was, this is the specific adverse event that caused them to shut down the smallpox vaccination campaign back in the day when Cheney was in charge after 9-11 when they were thinking they had to vaccinate um, all of the frontline workers across the United States and they started seeing pericarditis and myocarditis crop up. It is a known consequence with other vaccines also. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Could you finally, doctor, just comment, you went to Rome, now we have 10,000 doctors who have signed this proclamation uh, that are in green. That, that's a lot of doctors right there. What, what, what do you hope the impact of, of, of that will be? So that um, initiative was fostered in part, I mean, this was another conversation I had on the Bannon show back in the day. I said, you know, doctors are being blocked from practicing medicine and it's, it's, um, it's stunning. Uh, pharmacies won't fill prescriptions for things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and others. If they say that they're being used for COVID as opposed to mites in the case of ivermectin. Um, so pharmacists are blocking physicians' prescriptions. Physicians are being threatened or are being actively investigated to lose their license for prescribing these drugs off-label to physician to patients. Um, and the the rules have come down from NIH, which is to say, basically, from Tony's brain, Dr. Fauci. Uh, that thou shalt not provide early treatment. Now, that's all changing now that we have this new Merck agent and potentially the Pfizer agent. Now they're saying, oh, well, we're going to have to have drugs early. But before then, it was, no, 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 you can't treat anybody early. And uh, the only way to deal with COVID is you go to the hospital and the hospital, you know, you're, you're having respiratory distress and the hospital checks your blood oxygen and says, no, no, no. Your lips aren't blue yet. Go home. Come back when they are. 
which is to say, go home, let this thing incubate until it trashes your lungs and your body, and then come in. Okay, that is so deeply counterintuitive. And then we put you on a ventilator. Then we put you on a ventilator and kill you by popping the pressure up, you know, which happened a lot early on. Um, uh, so, um, it's nuts. And so, uh, there are these physicians, like there's two docs, George Farid is one of them, in the Imperial Valley in California that have saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. They've treated a huge number of patients with early treatment in the Imperial Valley that includes ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, other agents, zinc. So we came together in Puerto Rico. The group were brought together under the guidance of Richard Urso, who has one of the largest practices in the United States, outpatient practices. He's in Texas. And he created a foundation of which I'm ostensibly the president now. He invited me to serve as president because uh, I look like the guy in the beer commercials. Um, and, uh, and we went down to Puerto Rico as a group and met and discussed the situation, discussed the different treatment protocols, and came up with this declaration of physicians' rights to practice medicine. Seems simple enough. You know, physicians have the right to practice medicine. <laughs> Not revolutionary. But it is. It's a revolutionary statement. Um, uh, and then that was refined. We built it down in Puerto Rico. Then it was further refined. And then I read it, and it was rolled out at the Rome Summit a couple of weeks ago. And uh, just caught fire all over the world. And then we set up a, a new portal of highly curated content for people. And your listeners can find it at globalcovidsummit.org. And within that is linked this physician's declaration. And what we decided, there's, there's the Great Barrington Declaration is another one that was put out much earlier in slightly different scope. And in that one, anybody could sign it. And they have tens of thousands of names, as I recall. But the press discounts that because they say, well, in a population of 7 billion, what's 10,000 or, you know, 50,000? Um, we were faced with, it was coming direct from the White House, like most of this stuff does, the propaganda, with the Surgeon General making statements that the people that were advocating early treatment and physicians' right to treat were basically a small number of right-wing crazies and proud boys. That was the stereotype. And that was reinforced in various propaganda pieces that were put out. I think one was in MedPage today. Okay. You know, once again, uh, character assassination. This is worldwide. This has been one of the fascinating things with my recent Europe trip was physicians all over the world, Latin America, Europe, United States, Canada, all over the world, are, are being subjected to the same playbook by the, this centralized press messaging. That if you, if you advocate for early treatment, you're a crackpot. You're, you're outside of the mainstream. You need to be disciplined. You are being irresponsible. You're putting patients at risk by 
giving early treatment with anti-inflammatories that are that have a proven track record of safety this is it's but it's this is what's being reinforced okay and so in response to that we said what can we do we're being labeled because this is a group you know of of 10 or 15 that are out at the tip of the spear like me speaking to folks like you on podcasts etc and so we're all getting this this fact checking and stereotyping and character assassination so we said what can we do so we set up the declaration and we restricted the signatories to just physicians and medical scientists. And that was only put up a couple weeks ago. And uh, it's, it's, as one would hope, it's going exponential. And more and more docs are signing it, but there's a lot of docs that won't, even though they agree with it. The reason why, so I, I was talking to a physician the other day that I've been collaborating with for over a year. He works at a Wisconsin hospital. He's been incredibly innovative. He is the one that came up with the combination of famotidine and celecoxib that we now have three large clinical trials, two funded by the DOD, launched about, okay? And he was subjected to nitpicking um, attacks on him personally and now threatened with loss of his license for um, practicing this early treatment strategy that he's helped develop. Um, and he's, and I said to him, you know, will you sign the declaration? He said, I can't. Mm. Because I'm now at risk for losing my license. They've threatened me with this. So they're attacking folks directly, physicians, that to have 10,000 signing it, those are 10,000 people that are putting their careers at risk. They're not just, you know, it's not just, and for the younger physicians, they're sitting on huge mountains of debt. They cannot afford to take any risks. That's why they're not talking. That's why they can't speak up. That's why they have to toe the party line. That's why they have to take the money from Merck or Pfizer and do what their hospital administrators tell them to do without questioning it is because they don't have any financial choice. They are in handcuffs. Gosh, doctor, thank you so much for sitting here with us today. You don't seem like a right-wing wacko. Uh, if anything, I was, I was before all this, I, what, Jill and I donated to the Biden campaign. Um, uh, I think what I've seen is a lot of center left people which is where we've been kind of pragmatic left mm -hmm. are so disenchanted with what they've seen they're never going back I mean this authoritarianism is over the top and um, I think number one the only way now this is going to change is in the ballot box if you know ballot the next election is free is another question right is it going to be tweaked and the same is true all over the world uh you know democracy is at risk right now and um i feel that firmly and i feel the only the only road out here is political they don't care about the rules they don't care about the law they will have their way with us you know get the jab or lose your job right and if you're a hospital 
and you don't impose this policy of get the jab in your employees, they will cut off Medicare and Medicaid payments. Okay, so you're suddenly bankrupt. If you're a hospital administrator, you're between a rock and a hard spot. You're facing the lawsuits from your employees or the federal government cutting off your money. Um, that This is, talk about heavy-handed. And this is why you've decided to speak up. I decided because of the bioethics. The bioethics are fundamentally wrong. There's three legs to the stool in bioethics, particularly for experimental products, which mostly still are. Um, there has to be full and complete disclosure of risks. The risks have to be disclosed in a way that people can understand them using common language, not fancy doctor talk. And people have to accept those risks willingly. They cannot be coerced or compelled in any way and yet they have been subjected to constant coercion and and these bizarre incentives like ice cream cones for children to get the jab without their parents approval in Canada um, and and now we've got I mean the, my colleagues in Australia if you followed that it's shocking I mean protest against the vaccine and get hit with rubber bullets from lines of cops in black armor um, uh, caused a lot of people to say what you know is this really about the vaccine or is it about something else what in reviewing Bobby Kennedy's book one of the things he he brought a, I, I really don't like going down the conspiracy pathway I've resisted it pretty hard but I'm also uh, very deeply embedded in the biodefense community and to some extent in the intelligence community. I'm not an intelligence officer, I never have been, but I, I work with those who are. Um, and uh, so I'm very aware of the war games that have been going on for years. And there's a series of these war games uh, that have been played out um, that have brought in not just the US government but representatives of foreign governments including the Chinese government to participate in these uh, war game scenarios of what are we gonna do with an outbreak how are we gonna manage that how are we gonna manage our population and um, if you in these their documents are readily available often from Johns Hopkins and uh, if you read through those war game scenarios and their notes and minutes and videos and they're very proud of them um, it almost always ends up with authoritarianism it almost always ends up with imposing authority on the populace to force them to do something that they don't want to do this is and and management of press, management of information, uh, this strategy, the strategies that we've seen that has been so confusing, why, why this coordinated effort between big tech and, and the press and, and uh, these fact checkers, and you know, this is all gamed out, okay? This is, this is a playbook that's been developed for over decades 
of the series of war games that have included representatives from governments all over the world. So it's no surprise that they're all off the same playbook. They're all singing from the same hymnal because they've practiced this repeatedly. And, and if you look at those documents of what they've said they will do and what they believe they must do, what we're experiencing is exactly what they have planned to do. And the way out is just a complete overhaul of these kind of politicians. I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp now, and I'm sorry to say it, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. Uh, I'm so disheartened by what I've seen. Um, the system is deeply corrupt. Regulatory capture is a phrase for what's happened with Department of Health and Human Services is, is, doesn't even scratch the surface. I was talking to a group of lawyers that I used to support as an expert witness on another case. Um, and they were saying, they were alarmed about what I'm saying in you know, public and things. Um, I said, guys, the regulatory capture that you were dealing with with your case was child's play compared to what's happening now. It is deep and profound. It cuts across the entire government. Pharma has bought the hill. Um, and the, the way you can see it, you know, for a common person, we can all see these things, okay? Like people say, where the vaccine's rushed. Everybody knows it usually takes a decade to make a vaccine. And the government says, no, they weren't rushed. We didn't cut any corners. I'm sorry. <laughs> we cut corners. Everybody knows that. I mean, it's, it's as clear as the nose on your face. Okay, another clear as the nose on your face thing is that we went from Trump to Biden and nothing changed. If anything, it got worse. Okay, what does that tell you? It transcends parties. It's the same players in there. A lot of them have got deep CIA ties. How do I know that? Am I being paranoid? No, because I know they're CIA guys, okay? Because I've worked with them for decades. Okay, I've co-published with them. Okay, um, I know they're CIA. So it's not, it's not a weird crackpot fantasy. Uh, it's reality. And what are we going to do about it now? I, I really do think that um, our civil rights have been trampled globally. I mean, there but for the grace of God, in terms of the Australians, go we. Um, those poor souls, and it was Australia... I mean, you, it's the land of Crocodile Dundee, right? The big knife, and rawr, rawr, you know? <laughs> they are, you know, locked up and uh, don't come out. Well, doctor, thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, you know, it, it takes somebody like you to, to wake, wake us up, and, and I think you've, you've, you've done that. And I thank you for your courage and your, um, your generosity. Thanks. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to share my idiosyncratic point of view with your audience. Um, I hope, you know, we're all in this together, right? It's not idiosyncratic, though. I mean, you make, you make perfect sense. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Mm -hmm.